Progressive Motorcycle presents Road Wisdom from the Motor. Half man, half motorcycle. To find your balance, keep riding. And if you stop, put your feet down so you don't fall. Progressive Motorcycle also presents Roadside Assistance. Progressive Motorcycle for those who were born to ride. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Here to set you free, happy Friday, and welcome or welcome back to the only true democracy in talk. I'm your host, Leslie Marshall. I'm here in sunny today, uh, Southern California. You know I'm in Cali because uh, I have an In-N-Out Burger Diet Coke. Uh, my kids begged me for In-N-Out Burger for lunch today. Uh, but not in uh, L.A. We're going to talk to somebody in the D.C. area. But first, want to thank everybody tuning in, watching us on Twitter's Periscope, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, LinkedIn Live, listening to us on radio, on stream, on podcast. We appreciate uh, you listening or watching the show any way you get it. Joining us today is Greg Regan. Uh, Greg is president of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. Now, if you don't know them, well, you certainly should. I think everybody knows the AFL-CIO. They're a labor organization. But I don't know if you all know that they consist of 33 unions. So those unions together represent workers in all areas of transportation. Now, TTD focuses on federal legislation, regulatory matters, and policy issues that impact transportation workers. Right. No. Check out their website. Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO is ttd.org. And on Twitter, please follow them there at TTDA. F-L-C-I-O, T-T-D-A-F-L-C-I-O on Twitter. Greg, thank you for joining us today uh, there in the uh, Inside the Beltway on your beautiful porch on a beautiful day where we hear the birds. It's good to have you with us. Uh, thank you for taking the time on this Friday. Of course. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about uh, what happened yesterday. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg appeared before the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee to lay out the Biden administration's priorities for transportation. Now, Buttigieg actually brings a kind of celebrity style to this role. Uh, we haven't seen it previously uh, in this position or in previous administrations. I know it's early, uh, but what is your analysis or critique of him? I mean, how do you think he's doing so far? I've been really blown away, frankly. Um, you know, he he from a position where he didn't he didn't come from a federal from the federal government prior. Uh, he didn't have a heavy transportation background, although his his platform as a candidate was excellent. Um, I mean, he's really hit the ground running. If you if you watched his uh, testimony yesterday, I think one of the things that really came through is that he is putting the time in to understand all of these issues at a really deep level. Uh, he whether it be something as like foreign repair stations or the big uh, the big ticket items on investment, he is understanding the programs, the role the federal government plays, how they interact with states and local governments, um, and how workers are a central part to all this stuff. So he's been really excellent so far. 
You know, I would agree with you. I don't work in transportation, obviously, you know, working in the media. You know, I, I have to say to me, he seems like the type of person who raises the bar on himself and that, you know, he knew that this was a big responsibility and that to be up for the tax he, task, he needed to be prepared. And uh, he clearly came prepared. You know what I mean? He's de- he's definitely uh, hit the ground running. I, and I, and I, a lot of people, I think, especially when they saw him when he was running for president, very intelligent guy, uh, mm-hmm. knows knows a lot of stuff and uh, d- definitely would be an asset in any department. But this is this is an area I think uh, I think uh, Joe Biden made a very wise pick uh, with Pete Buttigieg in this position. I completely agree. And, and you know what, what what it says to me is somebody with his immense talent, his abilities as a communicator, his intellect. Um, for me, it shows where the president's priorities are. And, uh, you know, already we've seen a massive relief plan uh, and he's shifting now towards infrastructure and stimulus spending. Uh, I think he sees an opportunity here, as I do, to uh, really make generational investments in our transportation and infrastructure and to lead in a way that we haven't seen in quite some time. And I think he chose somebody who is high profile and extremely adept to lead on those issues. And I think it shows that he he's serious about doing things that frankly have been stalled for a long, long time. And I think they won't be, not only because he's at the helm, but because more people, he's, he, he and his celebrity status, if you will, yeah. put a spotlight on these issues. So let's talk about some of the issues. One of the first priorities raised during the hearing was implementing a number of unmet congressional mandates designed to make the aviation system safer for both workers and passengers. Um, can you talk to us about these mandates and, and why they haven't been implemented in the past and, and what uh, Transportation Secretary Buttigieg can do to change that situation? Sure. And in aviation in particular, I mean, we saw uh, two major pieces of legislation passed during the Trump administration. Uh, one was the FAA reauthorization in 2018. The other one was the certification reform bill that was done uh, at the very end of last year. Uh, and in both cases, you know, there are important safety mandates. There's things like flight attendant fatigue regulations that need to be updated, uh, secondary barriers for secondary cockpit barriers, which are the only remaining uh issue from the 9-11 commission report that has not been implemented and you know the fact that the faa didn't take it upon themselves to do it alone shows the uh the amount of pushback we got from the industry on that issue but Mm -hmm. congress stepped up and said you need to do it now um foreign repair station oversight where we have essentially two separate safety regimes for domestic repair stations and foreign repair stations that are operating uh you know doing heavy maintenance on the same aircraft u.s certified aircraft all of these things were done on a bipartisan basis because they are needed for safety. And, you know, frankly, I don't know what the motivation is from the Trump administration to not implement them, um, other than perhaps it pushed back from the industry, or maybe it's just they they were, you know, allergic to regulation for the sake of regulation. Um, but regardless, we have an opportunity now to, to do things that not only um, are needed from a safety perspective, but more importantly, they have bipartisan support. They were done in Republican-controlled Congresses and with Republican support across the board. So uh, they can make a strong statement by acting early on these issues. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because transportation really isn't a partisan issue. I mean, both Democrats and Republicans need transportation, you know, and both Democrats and Republicans have constituents working within the transportation industry. But I understand there are other unmet mandates uh, outside of the uh, space of aviation. Could you tell me about these and also how they impact working people? 
Yeah, I mean, one example, there was a part of the FAST Act, which was done in 2016, uh, was a requirement for the federal government to play a, a larger role in protecting transit operators from assaults. And uh, there was a rulemaking requirement that, that the Trump administration, frankly, just took a pass on. They said, uh, this is up to local and state people to, to deal with. And uh, we disagree with that strongly. We think there needs to be a strong federal role to set a standard that, um, you know, whether it be the working environment, the operating environment within buses, whether it be, uh, you know, more standards and requirements across the board for how agencies are going to protect their employees that will not only protect workers, but protect the public who are riding these buses and riding these trains. Uh, another example is with two, per, you know, crew size mandates for freight rail, where you have now trains that are upwards of three miles long, operating through communities, oftentimes holding, uh, carrying uh, hazardous materials. And as we saw in Canada several years ago, I mean, there can be very yes. tragic consequences with this stuff. Um, having two people operate these massive trains is not um, not a big lift and frankly, something that should be required. And the current DOT has an opportunity to, to make a statement that we are going to have a safety focused agency now and the federal government is going to be leading the charge on that. With regard to the rest of the world, and I know sometimes Americans think, you know, we're we're the best at everything, but not always uh, the case. Do you think that uh, other, or do you know that other countries have some of these regulations when it comes to transportation? Well, um, I don't have, uh, you know, expertise in all the foreign laws, but I think we, we certainly, in many, especially in European countries, there are stronger labor laws and there's uh, more ability for them, for workers to have an input into their, uh, into their workplace environment, into their safety environment. And we don't see industries collapsing because workers have a larger voice. Um, in, in the industries that I represent, we have probably the, the highest union density of any industry in the country with transportation, whether it be transit, rail, aviation, uh, you know, freight rail is wall-to-wall -wall union. Aviation is, what, 90% union. Um, and these are middle-class jobs, and these industries are doing quite well. So, well, outside the pandemic, I, I would suppose. So I think we are an example that shows that um, you can give workers more of a voice. You can give people um, more rights at the workplace and more ability to help shape their workplace environment. And it's not a business-killing thing. This is about shared equity and shared participation in our economy. We're going to be taking a break, but I want to remind you once again, we're talking with Greg Regan. He is from the, he's president of the Transportation Trades Department, the TTD at AFL-CIO. And like I mentioned, check out their website, go to ttd.org. You can find out more information there. Do that during the break. And on Twitter, be sure to follow them at TTDAFL-CIO. I'm Leslie Marshall. You can follow me at Leslie Marshall on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Leslie Marshall, LinkedIn at Leslie Marshall, Instagram at Leslie Marshall. Talker, and we're going to talk uh, more about transportation, about Greg Buttigieg, about the Biden administration, about things that need to change and might change in this administration moving forward. Please don't go away. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. We are back with the president of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, 
Greg Regan. Like I said, on Twitter, follow them at TTD and TTD AFLCIO, and also go to the website TTD.org. Greg, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Uh, because I want to get everything in with time, just jumping right into the question. Um, you had mentioned uh, at the onset uh, of the interview today, at the onset of the hour, uh, that, you know, the COVID relief bill. And now that Congress has passed and the president has signed a major COVID-19 relief bill, everyone's focus seems to be turning to infrastructure investment. And there is strong support among the American people, the voters, as well as both Democrats and Republicans for investing in our roads, our bridges, our ports, our airports, our schools. And we go on, we go water and national security and uh, broadband. Uh, we know the needs are there. Uh, what will it take to finally get an infrastructure package across that finish line? And, and how can this kind of investment help the working people, the working class? Um, so one thing that's been lacking, frankly, is strong executive leadership on this issue. And that's something where the, the president has clearly showed that this is a priority, as I mentioned. He, I think he knows how important it is, not only for you know, I think he would have known it was important if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic and not needing the economic recovery that we do need. Um, but, you know, we've had underinvested systems for years. But um, given the current situation, there is no better bang for the buck in terms of economic stimulus than investment in infrastructure and in transportation. So that is going to be a key part of our economic recovery for all Americans is investing in all of this. Um, I think there is a unique opportunity here, both with the political willpower and with the leadership that we have in place to get the type of major investments that are needed in our country to correct for, frankly, the underinvestment we've had for decades. And we can accomplish things like completing Gateway in the Northeast Corridor. We can accomplish um, investing in our transit systems so they're able to meet the demand and the needs of every community that, that, be, that they're intended to serve. And that includes a lot of disadvantaged communities. Um, we need to make sure that we have modern airports and uh, an Amtrak, a passenger rail system that, that frankly can stand up to the rest of the world because we're well behind that and it's because we haven't paid for it. Um, so the fact that we have federal leadership now that understands it, the fact that we have a demonstrated need not only for new infrastructure modernizing, but for economic stimulus because we are dealing with a once in a generation um, crisis right now when it comes to this, this pandemic and the, and the economic fallouts of it. And, and also, I constantly say, you know, th these are job creators. This is a win-win, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. If you can bring jobs home or jobs back or both jobs home and jobs back uh, to your state, if you're a senator or to your district, if you're a House member, it, it always uh, perplexes me greatly uh, why there is any pushback or um, political partisanship or divide on any of these issues when there's so much support for repair of infrastructure, investment in infrastructure on both sides of the aisle among the politicians as well as their constituents. So it, it just amazes me that we're still having this conversation. You know what I mean? We're not saying, now that that has passed, what do you think we need to do next? You know, we're still we're still talking about getting this done. And look at what the states are doing. I mean, a lot of states have in, increased their own gas tax, and it's not like the people are losing their elections left and right because they supported that. In fact, the opposite is true, because people are willing to pay a little bit more when, we see, when they see what the results are. If that means they're improving the roads and bridges in their community, if we're giving people more access to public transportation, um, all of these things are, are things that voters see and they care about, and they're willing to, to make the public investment into their government in a, when they see the results of it. And for me, I think it's a, it's a win politically and it's a win from a policy perspective.
I want to go back to the hearing yesterday because during the hearing, a great deal of emphasis was placed on investing in our transit systems for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. Uh, Secretary Buttigieg is committed to improving equity. And we know building out public transportation is a great way to do that. But many Americans still rely on cars to get around, uh, even in rural areas, uh, less populated areas, more so that don't have subways or buses in their area. Um, highways are, are still very valued and very used in those areas. And even, you know, people who leave the city, you know, to get from point A to point B, you know, vacations, visit family. What kind of approach to infrastructure investment would you like to see from this administration? If Secretary uh, Buttigieg called you and said, Greg, you know, help me out here. You know, how how would you advise me to do this? What would you like to see this administration do uh, and have an approach to with infrastructure investment? Well, the Highway Trust Fund needs to be shored up. And the Highway Trust Fund does, um, and this was brought up in the hearing as well, I mean, that pays for both transit and, and roads and bridges in our in our country. So, um, but it, it, unfortunately, it's been operating on a 1994 budget, uh, including through inflation, and we are constantly having to push general fund money into it to shore it up. So one thing that's been a challenge for, for a long time now is making sure that we have a sustainable funding source for for the highway trust fund and that's going to uh frankly make it better for drivers all throughout the country one of the challenges we face moving forward however is how do we make sure that all of the people that are using the system are paying equitably into it uh as we have you know more fuel efficient cars uh with the internal combustion engines and then especially as we move towards electric vehicles um if you're driving a tesla right now you're not paying into the the highway trust fund you're not um, paying for the roads that you're driving on. So we are going to have to have to figure out a system that does this in a, a fair and equitable way uh, and one that invests in every mode across the across the country, whether it be roads and bridges, transit, rail. Um, all of these areas need to have a sustainable federal funding source. And uh, and that's going to be the biggest challenge here. Greg, can I tell you something? You're the and I live in California where we have a, a fair amount of electric vehicles on the road. Um, you're the first person I heard mention that. Seriously. Um, and, and, and people don't even think of that. Yeah, I'm not. You know, if you're driving an electric vehicle, you're not paying into that system. And especially as we move toward having more and maybe total electric vehicles in our future someday. You know, that's something that has to be looked at. That's that's very, very interesting because, um, you know, th- you know, there's going to be a time between point A and point B where we certainly have a hybrid um, of drivers who are using electric or gas-fueled uh, vehicles. Yeah, and uh, you know it's funny. West, uh, Winston Churchill, almost a century ago, uh, proposed the first gasoline tax in, in the UK back when he was uh, not prime minister. I think he was the, the, the admiralty of the Navy or something like that at the time. But he proposed a, uh, that as a sustainable way of paying for their the roads that he knew was going to be necessary here. And we're at a similar point right now where um, we have new technologies and they're, they present new policy questions and new concerns. So how we draft that in, in this year and the, in the coming few years is going to really set the tone for, for a long time about how we as a country attack these uh, public needs and needs that we all share. We have about a minute left, although I would love to talk to you more. I'd like to give you that last minute and, and you know, to share with those listening and, and watching, you know, something maybe that I didn't touch upon, a point that you'd like to hit home. Yeah, I, I do think we are, uh, I, I said it before, but I think we have a once in a generation opportunity here to, to, to really reset how we view our public infrastructure and our public transportation. Um, this is a chance where 
we can, uh, you know, really create a new direction for federal policy. Um, and it starts with the big investments, it's, and, but it also starts with the safety environment uh, and one where we are re rethinking about um, what are the goals or what do we expect from our federal government in terms of their, um, in terms of uh, how they're serving constituents, how they're serving working people. And, um, and as we challenge, you know, as we tackle new challenges, whether it be automated vehicles, electric vehicles, um, the new, you know, gig economy type of, of workers, um, making sure that we set the tone that they're going to be uh, worker first and safety first is, is an important opportunity right now. Well, Greg, you did a great job. We'd love to have you come back on again. Uh, good to know we share a, a friend there at AFL-CIO. And, uh, and thank you for being with us, taking the time on this Friday. Once again, follow them on Twitter at TTDAFL-CIO. Greg, as I mentioned, Greg Regan is president of the Transportation Trades Department, the TTD, at the AFL-CIO. And go to their website to find out more, TTD.org. That's TTD.org. I'm Leslie Marshall. Quick break. When we come back, second half of the hour with our second guest, Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Stay with us. And Greg, once again, thank you. And we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Happy Friday. Welcome or welcome back. Only True Democracy and Talk. Thank you for listening to us on radio, on stream, on podcast. Also for watching us on Twitter's Periscope, YouTube Live, Facebook Live, and LinkedIn Live. Second half of the hour and our second guest, second topic. We have Mansur Shams with us. I think Mansur has been on the show before. He is a Muslim-American U.S. Marine veteran. He's a public speaker, and he is a term member on the Council on Foreign Relations, the CFR. He's also the founder of MuslimMarine.org, and he uses that platform to bridge gaps, create cross-cultural understanding, and counter hate, bigotry, and Islamophobia through education, conversation, and dialogue. He, he endeavors to unify an increasingly divided world in our nation. And the tagline for MuslimMarine.org is unifying people through conversation. His Twitter handle is at Mansour T. Shams. That's M-A-N-S-O-O-R-T-S-H-A-M-S. Follow him on Twitter. I do. You get a lot of information. Um, and I, I really, really enjoy uh, your tweets, Mansoor. Thank you for joining us and uh, welcome on this Friday. Thank you so much for having me. Here's speaking of Twitter, a tweet, and, and I think I've shared with you before, either in direct message on Twitter or the last time you were on, off air, on air, I'm married to a Muslim. Yes. Uh, my married name is Muslim. I won't share that with everybody, uh, but my last name. But, um, you know, I, I come from this from a different angle. Um, I don't know what it's like to walk in a Muslim shoes, but I do know what it's like to be married to a Muslim, have a brown son I adopted from Pakistan at the ED Foundation, and uh, husband and children who have things said to them or about them or our family uh, based on that. Um, so I have a, a personal connection to uh, the interest in your tweets as well. And speaking of your tweets, like I said, people should follow you. It's awesome. And yesterday you tweeted, quote, in the spirit of education, an AR-15 uses the same bullet my M-16 used when I served in the Marines. It shoots across eight football fields and annihilates anything it hits. It's a weapon of war that belongs on the battlefield. P.S. Looking forward to turning mine in.
the day America bans it. Interesting and powerful. So before we get into anything Muslim, let's talk Marines and guns and, and weapons. Now, that's something I don't know anything about, except I don't want to say anything about, except for research. I don't have that personal connection, uh, but you do. Um, when you hear people talk about the Second uh, Amendment, um, which was certainly set up by our founding forefathers for a well-regulated militia, um, and, and people have the right uh, to bear arms, to protect their families or to go hunting. Are these types of weapons, these types of assault rifles, uh, the AR-15 as an example, are they necessary to kill Bambi? Are they necessary to protect your family? Well, you know, I've had the privilege to sort of travel all across this nation. Uh, so I understand um uh, you know, many sides of the argument. So what I've always tried to do is to give a practical argument that resonates with everyone. Uh, although you'll always have people that will say, uh, the haters, I guess you can say, or the trolls. Uh, but I, I try to connect in different ways with everyone. So I've had the opportunity to visit uh, where uh, the Cal California, the West Coast, where you're at. And I've actually even driven from, Calif uh, from California into Nevada. And for me, that was a new experience because I had never done, you know, I obviously had never done that before, but in between, I saw many areas that were, uh, these very small towns uh, felt very uncomfortable and unfamiliar uh, compared to the place where I live in, in Maryland. And so I've also, uh, you know, spoken at the U University of Louisville, so that's Kentucky, I'm talking about, I've gone to Wisconsin, I've seen different parts of the country, so I can understand why a weapon, a gun for self-defense may be necessary. Totally get it. I'm not, I've never been about banning guns. I've, all, I've only been talking about banning weapons that are literally military type weapons. As I mentioned in that tweet, can shoot across eight football fields, a half a mile plus. Now imagine from my home where I'm at uh, and me having a weapon in my hand and shooting that far out and the other person not even knowing whatever even hit them. That's the type of weapons that are right now in the hands of everyday Americans under this whole Second Amendment, you know, debacle. Now, what people don't understand is that the the AR-15 is also very unique. It's very it's a very high-powered weapon. Okay, there's a reason why you rarely ever hear of any survivors from this gun. Why is that? Because when you shoot this, when that round hits someone. It, it not only hits them, but it explodes and sort of uh, expands, leaving a wound about this big. You're done. You're finished the moment it hits you. And the, its ability to travel so far. Now, since many of these sort of uh, shootings have happened in, you know, unfortunately, schools, uh, shopping malls, grocery stores. So imagine a, 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 an aisle in Walmart, a handgun versus an AR-15, completely different game. If you just look at what the Colorado shooter did, unfortunately, same thing. You know, his ability to shoot someone, you know, 50 yards away with accuracy is very easy versus a handgun. It's a very dangerous weapon. It's interesting because I was just going to ask you that to, to, to give us an example. So it, the, the AR-15 versus a handgun, it shoots farther. You don't need to be a sharpshooter necessarily, a sniper, and have that accuracy. Um uh, you know, a handgun might wound you and not kill you. AR-15, you're going to be dead because of that exploding inside. And forgive my ignorance, even though AR doesn't stand for um, a, a assault rifle, um, you know, are these semi-automatic weapons putting out bullets at a faster speed than a handgun? 
I, I assume the answer is yes. So you can look at it from, you know, when you ask this sort of question, um, there's a, when I was in the Marines, I saw so I shot both uh, the M16 um, and I shot a handgun. Now, there's a reason why when I was shooting an M16, we were practicing for 200, 300, and 500 yards, okay? There's a reason why when I was shooting with my handgun, it was, I think, 25 and 50 yards. That was the sort of accuracy we were looking at to, you know, get our marksmanship skills straight. So just think about that for a second, right? 200, 300, 500 yards, right? Very different ball game. And then a handgun, you're practicing at 25 and 50 yards, you know, much closer range. As far uh, the second question that you asked about, uh, uh, its ability to sort of fire. Now, yes, the in the Marine Corps, the, and, uh, you know, this, these are small nuances. People play tricks with these words, and that's very unfortunate. But the American public needs to understand that the difference between my M16 was me being able to hold my trigger down and it firing nonstop. The difference with the weapons that are allowed in everyday society, uh, battlefield-type weapons, AR-15s, you have to hit the uh, you have to hit the trigger each time. Now that is not that much of a difference. I mean, I understand in the you know in war. I mean, obviously you don't want to be doing this, but some people can go like this very quickly. If you know where I'm going with this, yes, it yes. is a very very dangerous weapon. I, I I I will repeat again. It is not about me being against uh, anyone in America having ownership of a uh, of a gun. We're a population of 300 million. It takes me five and a half hours to six hours to travel from. Uh, the East Coast to the West Coast. It's a humongous country. There are parts of this country that are, you know, where I would I, I would feel comfortable. I, I would need it because I would feel safer. But no, you don't need an AR-15 to do that. Yeah, that, that you know, that's my thing too. When they say Democrats are coming for your guns as a Democrat, I'm like, you know, I want every, I love our constitution. Uh, my favorite is the first amendment, not the second, but I do, you know, if somebody wants to have a gun, fine. Uh, but also what about the rights of people that don't want guns or don't want you and your guns around me and my kids who don't want guns as an example. Um, the city of Boulder, Colorado actually barred assault weapons in 2018. And they did it as a way to prevent mass shootings, uh, like the one that killed 17 at a high school in Parkland, Florida, 10 days after that ban was blocked in court this month, was when we saw this tragedy uh, in, in that city uh, where 10 people were killed at the supermarket um, this past Monday when the gunman opened fire uh, in announcing the arrest. And we had more information today. There will be 10 counts of first degree murder and more coming for attempted murder. Um, the suspected gunman who's 21 years of age, like I said, a, a charged with 10 counts of murder in the first degree. And uh, the, the investigators determined that he had purchased a Ruger AR-556 pistol on March 16th. There were no other details released as to when or how he obtained the AR-15 style firearm. And he, and he obtained it six days before the shooting. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with our guest. We're going to be back with you. Stick with us. We're talking with Mansur Shams, uh, a Muslim-American U.S. Marine veteran, public speaker, and term member on the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR. On Twitter, follow him at Mansur T. Shams, M-A-N-S-O-O-R-T-S-H-A-M-S. Back after this. Don't go away. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Hey, 
we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Mansur Sham is a Muslim American U.S. Marine veteran, public speaker, and a team uh, term member, excuse me, on the Fonsel, uh, Council on Foreign Relations. It is Friday, CFR. Uh, please uh, check out MuslimMarine.org. On Twitter, follow him at Mansur T. Shams, M-A-N-S-O-O-R-T-S-H-A-M-S. And uh, thank you for being with us today, Mansur. Um, I, I wanted to talk about that um, not just uh, the type of weapon and not just the Second Amendment, um, but why you think uh, a ban might be necessary. And I, and I think this time frame can speak to that because, you know, where's that cooling off period? I know some states have, you know, like 30 days between when you can register and buy. And some, you know, gun shops have said people sometimes don't come back. Uh, you know, maybe somebody was planning to hurt themselves or someone else and change their mind. Uh, so could you speak to those uh, those two issues? Look, the bottom line is that to get one of these weapons is is very easy. OK, uh, I, I can give you my own experience. Uh, I walked into a, a gun shop. Uh, it took me about 15 minutes okay, to walk out. One of, this was several years ago, but this is happening even today. You know, uh, a thought occurred to me during this um, discussion. Another challenge that we have, and I think that maybe the American public may not be aware of, but there's very little regulation on this. So a few years back, I used to try to take some friends out and say, let's go, you know, go, let's go to the gun range. And uh, I would just go online and I would order uh, the rounds specific to my, uh, my, my gun. And kid you not, uh, and I, it was shocking to me the first time I did it, uh, I ordered like, it was like five or eight of us, so I wanted everybody to get 20 rounds off at the range or something like this, right? 500 rounds, okay, or 1,000 rounds, I can't remember the specific number, don't quote me on this, came to my house within two or th- two to three days via UPS or F- uh, uh, FedEx, and they were sitting in front of my house. This, no regulation, anyone could have done that. This is how, so it, it is shocking to me it is shocking to me that in the United States of America in the 21st century, not only can you go and own a weapon like this, but you can go and own, have more rounds available to you than I had access to as a Marine when I was sort of on the range, which were highly regulated. Another point that I've also always tried to remind people is I didn't have my weapon on me all the time. When I, when I, was, not, when I was not in training, it was locked up in the armory, right? right? And it was only given to you either in training or if you're sent to battle. That's it. That's the only time you have that weapon. Here, you know, an 18-year-old or a 17, whoever it is, can just go in and they have this weapon. They can just, you know, one day they lose their mind and boom, they can just go in and just shoot everyone. In addition to the AR-15, he had, as I mentioned, that AR-556 pistol. Um, and what they're saying in Colorado, at least the Boulder City attorney, Tom Carr, who doesn't want to talk about this, is the city's code on assault weapons actually, uh, they say the AR-556 or 556 would have been included in the ban that was recently overturned less than two weeks before uh, this heinous incident. Can you speak to us about that weapon? Are you familiar with the AR-556? I, I'm conceptually familiar with it. It's You can call it a smaller version. This is how the gun industry is so tricky. You know, uh, it, It's a smaller version of a longer uh, AR-15 rifle. So if the AR-15 is like this big, uh, this big, right? This is like this big, which is actually even more dangerous to a certain extent because you can hide it um, so easily. I mean, you can just put it right here, and then and, and it and it gives you the same abilities, perhaps almost like an AR-15. You can put it against your shoulder. You can lock it in. These are very you know dangerous sort of maneuvers 
for anyone to be able to have in a situation where they're going out and about to slaughter and murder people. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it's no different. It's just a smaller version of it. So it's fair to say it's modeled after the AR-15. Correct. And, and and that's what they do to get around all these regulations and loopholes and, you know, even bans. What would you say to somebody playing devil's advocate that says you can buy those on the black market? It doesn't matter if they ban them. Look, I, I, we have to start somewhere in the country. I, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can get on the uh, in the gray market or on the black market. Um, I, I, I have little to say to them. I, you know, I, I understand that market exists. But I, right now, this is the conversation is about what are our laws doing to uh, you know, protect everyday citizens. How do we stop making it so easy where anyone can have accessibility to these these weapons of war, essentially, in their hands and go and murder uh, innocent lives all over this country? I, I don't, it is beyond my understanding that how many Americans have died. They say that over in this month, this year alone, in 2021, over 100 plus mass shootings have already taken place. I mean, I, I just don't, I, it is beyond my understanding where uh, the American public just does not, get it, uh, that why are we all coming united around this issue and saying, you know what, there's something wrong. we got to fix this. And I, and I hope that that will happen with voices like mine and others. We have less than five minutes in the interview, so I do want to get to this. Um, I saw the man being taken out of Boulder with his pants and no shirt and handcuffs, press reported white man. Yeah. Then everybody hears his name and everybody hears he's from Syria. And you and I are both on Twitter. And what do we see trending? Islam, Muslim, radical fundamentalist, Islamic terrorism, and the list goes on. You are a Muslim man. I know how I feel married to a Muslim man with this. You are a Muslim man. How does it make you feel when there's a rush to judgment every single time that an individual is of Middle Eastern or Arab descent or has a Muslim name um, that immediately, there, and also trending ISIS, right? That there's a connection to ISIS and that just the, there's such nasty, negative, uh, Islamophobic rhetoric uh, out there. Could you speak to that? Yeah, look, it's, it's painful, uh, uh, specifically uh, in my case, a guy who actually served uh, this nation with his life. I, I served during the 9-11 era and during the Iraq, uh, while the Iraq war was taking place. Uh, just I, I just came back from Friday prayer, um, and I had mentioned to one of the guys that I was going to be speaking to you. And, you know, he, he said something. And I said, you know what, that's a, that's a great story. I'm going to share that. And he said that I came one month after, uh, you know, from Pakistan, about one month after 9-11 had taken place. And, you know, when he started going to school, he said, every single day I was called Osama bin Laden. Okay. He said people literally would roll up paper and throw it at me. This guy, I mean, and I'm just sitting there and I'm listening to this guy and shaking my head. And he said one day, uh, like after about a month or a month and a half after of constant bullying, he took a chair and he just picks it up and throws it across the sort of sort of the room. Of course, you know, he had to go to the principal's office uh, and, uh, you know, and, and deal with that sort of situation. I think what we often sort of as a society, and, and not this is not just about Islamophobia, and just in general that we don't look at, is what are the things that are leading up to these sort of situations? So for someone, imagine someone like myself, I mean, we, we look at bullying, okay? I, I see this as a classic definition of bullying. I don't know if you remember a couple of years back, there was a story of the gymnast uh, who were abused by a doc uh, by this by this yes, doctor? Yes, absolutely. And I remember right at that court hearing, when the sentencing was taking place, the the father of one of the uh, gymnasts said, "Your Honor, can I jump over and just have thirty seconds with this gentleman?" Right? And, you're, and the you're, the uh, the judge said, "No, no, no. You know, you know, you know, I can't allow that." 
The guy leaps over and tries to tackle the doctor. And of course, security jumped in. And it was a father who couldn't understand how, you know, what had just taken place. You know, and I think we separate, you know, th this sort of stuff that's taking place in our nation, whether it's any child being bullied or whether it's Islamophobia, the effects that it has on one person. For one person, it might be picking up, a, uh, throwing a chair. One person, it might be depression. And for another person, it might be picking up a gun, unfortunately. So we really have to tackle these issues. We have to have these conversations and treat everyone with respect and dignity, which unfortunately isn't happening in this country. Because when we start talking Islamophobia, he's a Muslim, then you're painting everybody with a broad brush. And I only need to go back to January 6th uh, and what happened there. Uh, you know, I know that if it was a bunch of people who looked like me yeah. and who are Muslim, the country would be in a very different state right now. And it's almost as if we've forgotten what happened on January 6th, one of the 9-11 equivalent event that just took place uh, in, the in, the, in, in 2020, uh, 2021. So it is, it, we do have this hypocrisy that's taking place across this country, and I, it is uh, destroying lives, uh, literally. I, I don't uh, know if it was you. It was somebody after January 6th, or maybe on January 6th, that said um, they're they're escorting them out and letting them go. Um, if, if 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 and I think one black guy said, "If it had been black guys, are, are you kidding me?" And then some other guy said, "And if he had been if he had been named Muhammad, they would have had snipers on helicopters outside the building gunning them down." And and that's true. That's 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 a reality. You know, although we don't know a motive in Boulder. Uh, we are hearing from family and friends that there was something off. He was seeing people and hearing voices. Yeah. He never yelled, Alu Akbar. Not yeah. everyone does. But usually when we see some kind of ISIS-related connected terrorist attack, uh, that is done. And and I agree with you. We just have to stop the jumping to conclusions and the, and the stereotyping, uh, you know, based on religion or, or skin color or someone's name. That's, that's right. You know, and I think that another thing that everyone needs to remember, if anyone, forget the faith, if anyone has the audacity to pick up a weapon and start shooting people, there's nothing normal about that. Right. It doesn't really, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what their name is. It doesn't matter what their color is. And everybody says the, the motive. The motive matters, but what matters more are the victims. And like you said, not just the motive, but what led to that person doing that? What can we as a society do to stop that? You are awesome. We will have you back. It's good to see you, not just on Twitter. Mansley Chom, Muslim American U.S. Marine veteran, public speaker, and term member on the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR. Please check out MuslimMarine.org and do follow him on Twitter. His tweets are awesome, at Mansour T. Sham, M-A-N-S-O-O-R-T-S-H-A-M-S. -S -S. I'm Leslie Marshall. Have a great weekend. And thanks, Marky Mark Grimaldi, my executive producer. You are. When you place a wager with William Hill Sportsbook, every sports moment becomes even more interesting. And we have a special 2021 offer to help you bet on all your favorite sports risk-free. Download the William Hill mobile app. And when you sign up, you can get started with a risk-free bet of up to $2,021. Use promo code RADIORF. Must be present in Michigan, 21 plus only. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services Gambling Disorder Helpline at 1-800-270-7117. Let's make it interesting with William Hill Sportsbook. Progressive Motorcycle presents Road Wisdom from the Motor. The road is everything you want it to be. Everything. As long as what you want is road. To ride your motorcycle on. Motorcycle on.
Progressive Motorcycle also presents basic policies starting at $79 a year. Progressive Motorcycle, for those who were born to ride. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates annual premium for basic liability policy is not available in all states.